Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Andrew Schwartz from CSIS, and thank you for being at what I believe is our 35th edition of the Schieffer Series. We might need to do a recount. Uh, some of you may be familiar with recounts, and we may even have a few in the, more in the political season, but we think it's the 35th Schieffer Series. And so on behalf of Texas Christian University and the Schieffer School of Journalism at TCU and CSIS, uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you here, and I hope you enjoy this terrific panel we have. Bob. Thank you very much, Andrew, uh, and welcome, everyone. Well, this one is a little different. We thought we would talk about Anthony Shadid, who is one of, truly, uh, one of the great reporters uh, of our time. But <clears throat> we thought we'd kind of broaden that out into what is foreign reporting today? Is being a foreign correspondent the same as it was when uh, Ed Murrah sort of made that a something of a figure of adventure and, and so forth. Uh, and so, but we're going to talk. And I think uh, this program, was it your idea, John? Uh, it was Andrew's idea. Andrew's idea, but uh, John uh, knew uh, Anthony Shadid and has known him for a long, long time. John, of course, uh, holds the uh, Brzezinski Chair in Global Security uh, here at CSIS. He's the director of the Middle East program. Prior uh, to coming here, he served as a member of the policy planning staff at the State Department and was a special assistant to the Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs. Before that, he was a staffer up on Capitol Hill. Rajiv Chandrasakrian, uh, senior correspondent, associate editor of the Washington Post, bureau chief in Baghdad for the first two years of the Iraq War. He also has been a correspondent in Cairo and Southeast Asia, the author of the Imperial of Imperial Life in the Emerald City, uh, which is really a good book about uh, how it was like inside the Green Zone uh, during the American effort to reconstruct Iraq. Robert Wirth is Middle East correspondent for the New York Times Magazine, a correspondent in Baghdad for the Times from 2003 to 2006. He also has been a, uh, is, has a record as a very distinguished uh, correspondent in that part of the world, knows a lot about it. Uh, John, why don't you start us out, because you have put together uh, a little video of uh, Anthony Shadid wow. and who he was and what he was about. I didn't about. put it together. Let me, let me explain. Um, one of the sort of pathologies of, of getting a PhD is, is you become a grown-up and you still get really excited about getting free books. <laughs> I walked into the office one day in October, and I had this this set of galleys to the book by my old friend Anthony Shadid. And Anthony and I studied Arabic together in Cairo in 1991. We've been friends since, uh, been in touch periodically. And I knew he was restoring this house in Lebanon. Uh, and he was writing a book about it. And there I had the galleys. And I was about to go on a trip to the Middle East. And I read the book in maybe two or three days. Uh, sent Anthony a note saying, hey, here are the three countries I'm going to be in. Any chance we can meet up? didn't hear back, get off the plane, walk into my hotel in Bahrain, and there's Anthony doing an interview in the lobby. Uh, we hugged. I made an appointment for lunch the next day. I told him, I think this is a spectacular book. I mean, really, I've read hundreds of books on the Middle East. I put this in my top five. Um, and he was, in an Anthony way, flattered, like nobody had ever said anything nice about his writing before. Um, and uh, we agreed we were going to do something to roll out this book uh, in March. And actually, next week, we were going to tape an interview. 
uh, and I spoke to the producer, and because we weren't going to be in the same city, we were going to have to do it remotely. And the producer said, well, we have images. We actually have some video you shot. Um, what you're about to see is some of the video that Anthony shot in preparation for releasing this book. And it's about his ancestral homes, his great-grandfather's house. And he went back to Lebanon after having been a war correspondent in Baghdad for four years. Um, he went back to Lebanon and rebuilt this home and I think was trying to heal himself. And to me, this is an incredible book about the Middle East and about Lebanon. An incredible book about the Arab American experience, which we don't really read very much at all. An incredible book about sort of where people find their identity in the world. And Anthony sort of discovering, making peace with being an Arab American, never really fully feeling Arab, but always being in this bridge role. I think it's some <clears throat> very thought-provoking material, so why don't we watch Anthony talking about what he's doing, and then we'll, we'll talk more broadly about what he was doing. It is truly spectacular what, when you take away some of the age of this, or the accumulated dust and grime that's on the stone and reveal the colors that it originally was. And I just, I've stood here for, for yesterday, I stood here for a couple of hours just trying to make out all the colors you actually see in the stone itself. You see a, there's a gray that, that almost is blue, there's a, there's a brown that is like somewhat sandy at times, somewhat cream, you know, creamy at other times. It's just remarkable. I mean, I think if you look at the facade of that house right there, you probably see 10, 12 colors, uh, different kinds of colors. I have an obsession with blots. This old blot to me represents the old Levant. By putting it in this house, you know, I keep a part of that older Middle East, I keep a part of that older Levant alive. And, you know, if we have this notion or this idea that the house is living, you know, here's something that brings even more life to it. What this whole house is about and what, you know, this, this time and state about is about, and that's this question of identity. Um, I think the notion in the beginning was to, was to save the house. And as it's evolved, as the process has gone on, I realize we've created something almost entirely different, something almost entirely new. And I think that notion of new identity is probably one of the more revelatory things that have come out of the whole project, that you're not restoring its old identity, you're actually creating a new identity that springs from what it, what it once was. And I think it's interesting for me as a writer in some respects is that, you know, part of this whole project was to understand my relationship to the town, you know, my own identity in a sense. And I think seeing it through the lens of the house has been something interesting, that the house assumes a new identity. It has, its, it has an identity that's evolving on its own terms. And I think you could say that about you know, a person's identity as well, that, that that identity is an organic process. It changes, it reformulates itself, it recreates itself. And um, I think you know, my own self trying to understand you know, my relationship to these places through the house and its evolution has been something really interesting. I don't think I figured it out yet, but I do think it's a, it's a process that's underway. start, John, by asking you the uh, standard question we always asked about. What was he really like? Um, you know, the, the thing that, that 
I found most striking is that he's, he was always so much like the guy I met in 1991. Uh, I met him, he's a couple years out of college. He was uh, just sort of interested in the world. He, he was great at asking questions. He didn't put on airs. And I, to this day, that's the way he's like. I, I, you know, I, I saw him for lunch in Bahrain. And the course of our lunch was, I would say something mundane, and he'd say, you know, it's really interesting that you say that. And then he'd say something really nuanced that he'd picked up from meeting like the six most important people on some fascinating issue. Um, I saw an interview he did with a, a mutual friend of ours at NYU, and, and it, he turned it into, he was interviewing her rather than she interviewing him. Um, I ran into all sorts of younger people, including some people at CSIS, who in the last two or three years, right, since he was the two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, would send him a note and say, you know, I'm going to Lebanon. I'm really interested in your work. He said, oh, I'm going to miss you on this trip, but, but maybe in April we'll be able to hook up. He was so decent and modest as he continued to rise, continued to rise, always thinking that around the next corner would be the insight that would make something make more sense than it ever had before. And he made you believe that you had that insight inside of you. Mm. Raj, uh, you worked with him a lot uh, here and, and there when he was at the Washington Post. Uh, what, uh, what were the things that interested him? What, what was he trying to find out? What, did he, uh, what made him do what he did? He was unique in the world of journalists and foreign correspondents in that he had one overriding goal in his life. That was to be the, the best guy out there covering the Middle East. And he, that was his dream. And he, he, he fulfilled that dream in, in, in the short years he, he spent with us. Um, you know, I just want to go back for one second uh, because we, we all describe him as a as a third generation Lebanese American. And there's this tendency to think, oh, well, you know, he, he learned Arabic as a young kid. He had all these familial connections out there. Um, and so he just kind of plugged in and naturally just sort of slid into that. And it was all a product of hard work. And, 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 and so to, to the young students out there, I mean, I would say, uh, you know, Anthony was blessed with some, some innate talents, uh, you know, just a, uh, a, a, an incredibly skilled questioner, somebody who was a very hard worker, a very gifted writer. But when it came to Arabic, he, he studied it the hard way. He studied it in, in college. He spent a year in an immersion program in Cairo. Um, and then he just spent years reading, talking, reporting, and living in the Middle East and, and picked it up that way. Um, and I was struck going to Oklahoma City for um, a memorial service for him a couple of weeks ago um, and, and just observing uh, you know, the surroundings in which he grew up in, uh, his, his very Americanized family. Um, you know, this was a guy whose who's real mastery of the Middle East came from, from everything that he immersed himself in, from books to conversations with people to, to, to real time on the, on the ground and, and, and fell in love with that environment. But he went into the Middle East as an American. I yes, mean, an Arab American, but as an American, not as an Arab uh, trying to explain this to other people. He he went as an American reporting on a story. Yes, and he, but he went with with a with an open eye, uh, and and a real uh, sense of purpose in trying to understand and bridge 
these cultures and tell tell the stories that other people weren't telling and understanding that 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 having uh, proficiency with the language, uh, understanding history and culture was uh, were essential prerequisites to being able to authoritatively chronicle what was occurring there. He you know, he wasn't a guy who set out to be a war correspondent. Uh, he he just found himself in the midst of wars because. That's what has plagued the region in, in, in recent years. Um, but it, he, was, he was all about just trying to understand that region and, and convey it to people back here in a, in, a, in a lucid, revelatory way, often through the stories of people and through understanding uh, and, and, and describing nuances and details that, uh, and, 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 and which would made his writing so evocative but also so revelatory. Bob, you, uh, uh, I, I did not know Anthony Shadid. I think I'm the only person in America that didn't know him, but I, I knew his work, I, I read his work, and I was a great admirer of his work, but I didn't know him at all. Uh, what, what, was he different than other foreign correspondents? Uh, well, what, what struck me at, when I first got to know him about Anthony, I mean, even then it was clear he was a tremendously gifted and tremendously ambitious guy, but that's not what came across. I mean, he had this, humbleness and tremendous um, uh, empathy and tremendous generosity. I mean, he was, when I arrived in Beirut to be the Times' Beirut uh, bureau chief in 2007, I was a little bit nervous because Anthony Shadid was Anthony Shadid. And he was, even though he was sort of writing the book, he was also pinch hitting and covering Lebanon. But you never got the slightest feeling of competition. And he, he wore his tremendous knowledge very lightly. I never saw him become impatient with other people, as he well might have, who didn't know anything about the region. Um, and with me, he was, just, he was just delighted to have someone who cared a lot about the region to sit down with. He was happy to share sources. I mean, you didn't even really dream of competing with him at that point, at least I didn't. Um, I was just happy to have someone like him to learn from. Um, and he would sit down, I mean, I remember these wonderful dinners where he just, he loved to tell great stories and he loved to hear great stories. And, and you just, he's just a wonderful person to sort of share that stuff with. What, uh what is the state of foreign correspondency, if, if, that, if there is such a word these days? Uh, it's very different. All of journalism is different than when I started out a long time, back when, before you all were born. Uh, we have the world of Twitter and, and all this, this kind of stuff. What's it like to be out there on the other end of the bullwhip uh, with all the people back in New York saying, we want this or that? And, uh, and dealing with uh, this 24-7 world we all operate in now? Well, I think it's changed in a lot of different ways. But one way in which it's changed, particular in the Middle East, and I think Anthony is probably the greatest in single influence on this, I think you have more people. I mean, I think for a long time, the Middle East wasn't covered with the kind of depth, especially in the Arab perspective, that it should have been. I think that's, there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, one reason is that American reporters often Either now some of them did speak Arabic and did do a wonderful job, but newspapers didn't generally train you in Arabic language. I was very lucky in that I did get Arabic training and that the Times paid for it. But in the past, it had been more for Russia and China and Japan that they didn't do that for Arabic. Um, I think you know they would in my newspaper for many years had one person based in Cairo who essentially covered everything, not including Israel, but they covered everything from Mauritania all the way to Iran, which is an impossibly vast area for one person to cover. Um, and I think there has been more focus on the Middle East. I think there's been uh, a, a, a greater depth, and obviously no one did it uh, more deeply than Anthony, but there's more people out there now who speak the language, 
who know the culture and um, try to convey some of those nuances. So but, I think, but, I think, but I think, you know, Anthony also, when, when you looked at a, a story that he did, right, there was always at least one character that was fully developed who would work his way through the story. I know I, I sort of grew up, you know, reading the New York Times, and then I went to Cairo and I started meeting people. And then there was a period when it was rare for the New York Times to write a story where I didn't know everybody in the story because there was a stable of commentators. It was a very formulaic story, and you call up all the usual suspects, and you get a story, and you, look, you have a leftist and a rightist, and a, uh, that's the way the story got written. And Anthony's stories weren't like that. Anthony always had one person it was utterly impossible for you ever to have met. No, honestly, because it's a bookshop owner in some village that, you know, and this is the way he wrote because as, as you guys both said, he, I think what was so important to him is being a third generation Arab American, he started from a presumption of empathy, which he felt a responsibility to give you a flavor of. And that wasn't the way news reporting was done. News reporting was done, we're going to tick it off, we're going to check all the boxes, we're going to have a leftist, we're going to have a rightist. <clears throat> and Anthony looked for people, I think, who typified something, who reminded him of something, who were evocative of something, and that's what he was looking for, and that's what he communicated to the readers. And I think when you look at his reporting from Iraq, he was allowed to do that, allowed to do the reporting, and that's what he wrote. But, but it goes beyond that a little bit. It wasn't, in my mind, it wasn't just finding these incredibly compelling characters and, and, and weaving their stories into print. There was a genuine mastery of the subject material. So take Iraq in the summer of 2003, when, when many of our colleagues were focused on uh, the violence of the day or the, the questions of how long American soldiers would be there or the, the establishment of an occupation administration. Anthony was smart enough. Uh, and it spent enough time in the region to know that with the lid having come off of Iraq and Saddam deposed, um, the, the majority Shiite population would seek to assert itself. And the, the center of, of, of Shia learning, but also sort of Shia leadership, was down in the holy city of Najaf. And so he would go down there for days on end. Uh, I joked that he would, you know, at one point, you know, he was going to become a, you know, we call it a Syed, a descendant of the, of the Prophet Muhammad from all of his days over there. But he, he and so while he would, he would write these lyrical stories that would, would introduce us to people we'd never heard of, they were always sort of based on a real deep understanding. And you know, I, back to this memorial service in Oklahoma City, a, uh, uh, a State Department official who was there joked that in the summer of 2003 that Anthony's dispatches from, from places like Najaf were far more revelatory than any of the analyses that he would see from the CIA. It's very interesting. You know, I, I tell you, I, I bet what you say is absolutely true because I remember as a young reporter uh, growing up in Texas, whenever Eastern reporters, we, we, you know, we'd have some kind of presidential campaign or something like that, they'd come down their stories, they, they'd go over and they'd talk probably to Ben Barnes, who was the lieutenant governor, and they'd get the conservative view. Then they'd go over to the Texas Observer and talk to Molly Ivins. I mean, every story written about Texas for 10 years on politics had Ben Barnes, John Conley, and Molly Ivins in that story. And there were a lot of different views between <laughs> those polls, as it were. So I'm sure what you say, John, is but, very true. But he, but, was, but he was allowed not to do daily reporting. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's pre it's precisely his ability to go to Najaf. 
but and I not tell to you tweet what, about it every four hours. What, what, what kind of, I don't want to let this go un, un, unknown here, un, unnoticed. Uh, you seem to be saying that uh, the level of uh, reporting overseas is better than it used to be. And well, I think in journalism, we're always looking for a few things that we can point out that are better than they used to be, because sometimes yeah. they're hard to find, and I think, and I think that's it's very reassuring. It's, I think it's a very complicated picture. I think foreign correspondents at the same time are subject to, of course, many new pressures. They have to be more like wire reporters. They have to, fill, they have to do write web versions. I mean, I was doing, you know, sometimes with a breaking story, a web version, then a version for you know, our IHT partners, and then the final version later in the evening, and that can suck up a lot of the time that should be spent reporting. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I just think that, you know, luckily, there is, a, 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 I think, a more of a recognition that the kind of depth that Anthony brought is really, really important. So you have more younger um, Arab Americans and, and non-Arab Americans who are becoming part of this scene, who bring to it, you know, greater knowledge and sophistication. But I think the internet has, has made us more competitive, Bob. You know, there was a day, you know, years ago, even when I was starting out as a foreign correspondent, where before all these local papers were, were available, searchable on the internet, and before, uh, you know, Bloomberg and Reuters had as many people as they have out in the field, you could, you know, pop into, to, uh, you know, I was in, started out in Southeast Asia. You could pop into you know Phnom Penh, and you could pick up uh, the local papers and talk to a few of the local reporters, and you could essentially cobble those clips together and and write a nice story that would sail into the newspaper. Well, these days that's not good enough because all that stuff is out there, and nobody wants the Washington Post or the New York Times to come in and just rewrite stuff that's out there. There's a, there's a new pressure on original reporting. One, one other thing just to add, I was just so struck that after Anthony's death, when the New York Times established that online memorial page that involved uh, remembrances of a number of his colleagues, but also people from, from across the world, um, just what a humongous outpouring there was. And Anthony and his work made a, made a huge difference. But to me, it also spoke to the, the, the relevance of great foreign correspondency still to this day in our, in our society. It's great. I mean, we used to have the joke, you know, when you get there, do your analysis first and get that out of the way. <laughs> and then go do some reporting and find out what's going on. Well, I mean, it, it was a joke, but sometimes it was uh, <laughs> more true. <laughs> more, more, more true than a joke. What, uh, what did he think about the Middle East right now? I mean, what, what were his thoughts? Was he optimistic about the Arab Spring and all of that? Uh, what, what did he... What, what did he say about it? What did he think about it? Well, I think he was tremendously excited. I know he was tremendously excited when this whole thing broke out, you know, um, and in the very beginning of 2011, because he lived with, uh, you know, the sort of stasis and the sense of mm -hmm. just, just decay and, and um, despair that so many people had felt in the Arab world for so long. Um, but he also was pretty quick, you know, after the initial euphoria wore off, to say, you know, this... This is not going to be easy, and in some places it could be really dangerous. And uh, I mean, obviously Syria, but Libya as well, um, and and other places. I mean, he was, he was, he was realistic about it. Um, when well, he saw the, the potential of growing intolerance, yeah. right? I mean, he, I think he, he realistic is exactly it. So I think in some ways, he welcomed the opportunity to break out of this sort of encrusted Middle East but was concerned about some of the underlying pathologies. I mean, and the book talks lyrically about 
the unrecoverable cosmopolitan Lebanon that he had heard you know, stories from from his ancestors and knew about, and which clearly was never coming back. I mean, the, 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 the Lebanon he knew was a place that was very divided along clan lines, and he wasn't sure that, that they were really going to get to any cosmopolitan place. Um, but the most important thing to me was exactly what he said to me when he was going off to Baghdad in 2002 before the fall of Saddam Hussein. That's where the story is. He was desperate to be in the middle of the story. And he felt that for everything that was going on, he was, he was covering the story. And he was covering the story for the New York Times that was letting him cover the story the way he thought it should be done, writing these long feature stories that really would frame the way people could think about these events for years to come. And I think for him as a reporter, that's what he really cared about. He was in the middle of the story, and he was giving it shape. Why did he leave the post? Is that a secret, or did you know uh, he, he he had a great opportunity at the New York Times, um, and I think um, you know it was just a, a chance to 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 spread his wings at a at a different institution. Mm -hmm. um, he he loved the post. Um, but you know the post has also undergone a degree of of, uh, of retrenchment in its foreign coverage. Um, you know Anthony Anthony was different. Uh, you know he, he he would always be allowed to be out doing the stuff he wanted to do. But I think he was he was he was worried about what the paper's long term commitment uh, was going to be, and I think he felt that. Um, his odds of being out, being allowed to sort of stay out and do the sort of long form work that he wanted to do would be better at the times. But you know, I should note, with 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 due respect to both institutions, it does sort of pain me that when we were in the throes of the Arab Spring, that you know, Anthony, that neither the New York Times nor the Washington Post was able to sort of muster the same sort of um, uh, sort of space and freedom that Anthony had. Uh, at the post in 2003 in Baghdad, uh, when he could, you know, literally drive down to Najaf, spend three, four days down there, come back, and you know, within a day, turn around a, you know, 4,500-word piece that would sail onto the Sunday front page, uh, even though he got to write much longer than many of his colleagues uh, at the print edition of the Times. Um, uh, you know, he he still faced, say, you know, the Times is still facing some of those same pressures, and you know, I only wish that we could have. Uh, seen you know, Anthony kind of unplugged uh, in, uh, in his coverage of the Arab Spring. I mean, he did great work at the Times. I, I don't mean to, mm -hmm. to, to suggest otherwise. But um, you know, even in that environment, he, he still faced certain strictures. You know, um, one time Tony LaRusso, who just retired as manager of the St. Louis Cardinals, he was talking, giving an interview to some reporters, and he was talking about uh, how he, he gave batting instructions to some of his hitters. And, and, and so he was saying he did this and that. And, and then they said, well, what do you tell Albert Pujols? What kind of batting instructions do you give him? And he said, well, I tell him what time the game is and make sure he has a ride to the ballpark. <laughs> because he's maybe the greatest hitter in baseball today. What does an editor tell Anthony Shadid when they send him out uh, on a story? I think it's pretty much like that ball player you just mentioned. But I, but I would also say what was remarkable at Anthony is too, as well is that uh, one of the many things, Lebanon in particular, um, and Iraq as well, but maybe especially Lebanon, 
inspires a lot of partisanship. I mean, it, it, it's a bit like Israel that when any, anything you write, someone's bound to come down the other and say, side. well, you yeah. favored the phalangist or you said this, you know, and, and, um, and it's easy to kind of for people to get there and, and, and take sides. Um, Anthony was amazing in that way in that it was very hard for anybody to take issue. I mean, there, there were online critics, bloggers, whatever, who, who were attacked you no matter what you mm -hmm. said. And I was always amazed that they very rarely came after him because he just, he tended to, as much as possible, to, to convey as much nuance, you know, um, never to seem to sort of side clearly. I mean, it wasn't that he was trying to put himself in the middle. Mm -hmm. It was just that his, his stories tended to be long, very complex and, uh, and, and sophisticated. Um, and I talked to people at the State Department and elsewhere who would say, I mean, some of them who I knew had views that were at variance what I, what I privately knew to be Anthony's views, but they loved his work because they always learned something from it. And he wasn't, he wasn't picking, taking anybody's point of view. But what about at the paper uh, when they hired him? I mean, I wonder what they said to him. We want you to uh, go out there and call us when you get there and tell us what you find out. Would anybody say what we'd like to emphasize? Not, not a point of view, but what we really need to look into is this or that. It, I'm, I'm and was he heavily edited or? I don't think he was heavily edited. I, I mean, I'm I, sure he was fact-checked, obviously. Yeah. But. I, 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 one, one thing I would say is this. I think his writing, and, and John knows more about this than I do, but I mean, his writing definitely evolved. And there were times when he was writing for the Post when I would say, well, you know, that piece got a little mushy at times. Or, you know, it, it went on a little bit too long or it seemed a little bit unfocused. But I think his writing, and I don't, this may be partly editing, but I think it's also his own internal development, got more focused and, and more um, disciplined. Um, mm -hmm. And by the time he arrived at the Times, I, I don't think he needed all that much editing. I mean, I think essentially what they would say was, look, you know, I mean, especially when the Arab Spring broke out, I can tell you there was very little time for editors to give him too much direction. And they knew um, that he knew so much more than he did about the region that they would essentially say, look, find some themes, you know, um, tell us what you think is important. But, but he that, wasn't that a being said, That being said, in this conversation we had in October, he complained bitterly about the edit the editing process to get on the front page of the New York Times. <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? So, well, you know, the front page and they have this whole different process. I said, who the hell reads the New York Times in paper anyway? <laughs> I mean, how, how, do you know, how do you know what's on the front page? I said, again, Anthony, it's so great to hear you say that, right? <laughs> because his perception was that there was a separate editing process to get on the front page and that even Anthony Shadid with a lot of rope, with all the that he would battle with editors over phrases to get on the front page, and he was struggling against that. Well, you know, I, I would also add, I mean, I've been a reporter for over 50 years, and I never met a reporter that didn't have some kind of a gripe against an editor. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just, reporters don't like editors. Yeah. <laughs> but, but Bob, I, I want to know- Even you, though they're, they make us all better. As accomplished as he was, he wasn't, he wasn't a prima donna. When, you know, during the Arab Spring, there were days that he was writing the main news story at the Times. He wasn't the guy, he wasn't, he could have said, look, I'm not going to touch that. I'm going to go off and just do these features. I'm going to do, do what I want to do. And he, as long as I've known him, was always about helping the collective enterprise as well. And he did that at the Times, you know, brilliantly over the past year. I think back to 2003 in Baghdad, and that was his first Pulitzer Prize winning year. And he 
could have easily said, look, I'm only going to be writing these, these big, long stories about you know, how Iraq is transformed in the wake of Saddam Hussein. And we had a system in, our, in the Bureau where we rotated day story assignments. So every fourth day when he was there, he was doing, or fifth day, he was doing the news of the day story. And what was so remarkable was other people, accomplished colleagues, and sometimes myself, I'll admit to this, we kind of phoned it in. You know, okay, we'll just take these, you know, the reports of who was killed where and where these explosions were and the statements from officials and just quickly cobble it together because you knew it wasn't going to land on the front page. You just had to get it done so you could focus on your, your, your piece of enterprise work. And Anthony, more than anybody else in that bureau, believed that even those day stories, and, and if we're talking to journalism students here, I think this is an instructive lesson from Anthony's uh, life's work. He believed even those day stories were a chance to make a difference. So he would go out and he'd go and try to get some on the ground reporting. Uh, he wouldn't just sit in the bureau and take the press releases and, 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 the, and the feeds from the Iraqi colleagues and make a few phone calls. He'd try to add some real value added to it. Even if it was going to appear on page A15, he was going to try to find some, some, some original facts and original reporting uh, because that was an opportunity to to tell readers, tell people about what was happening that day, and he wasn't going to pass it up. And, and yeah. I, I would add one Let, small. This, uh, yeah, I, go ahead. It's less about the writing, but he would uh, in Cairo, the, the, the sort of initial days of, of the uh, revolution there. Um, uh, David Kirkpatrick, who was the brand new bureau chief in Cairo, had his own nice big office, and somebody else had taken a second office. Anthony easily could have kicked somebody out of their office. He, there was a round table right in the middle of all the chaos with the sort of, you know, the, the teacups and the people rushing back and forth in the newspapers. He just sat there and wrote his stories in the middle of it all and never asked for special treatment of any kind. I mean, it was that's, kind of a uh, that, That's a great story. Let's, uh, you mentioned students. If there are some students here, I'd like for them to ask the first questions because this is really uh, uh, a seminar about, about reporting and what it's like to be a reporter and uh, so if, if any of you are students, hold up your hands, and I'd like to hear from you first. If any of you all were all in Texas? <laughs> <laughs> Do we have any students here today? <laughs> okay. Well, there are some here that look like students. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if there are others that would like to ask questions, go ahead. Yes. correspondent mm -hmm. but so I have a comment and then I would like feedback on sure. it but talking about the quality of foreign reporting today I feel very pessimistic about it just because looking at the business models um, I know of so many young reporters who have gone freelance um, hoping to make connections with Reuters and New York Times and eventually cobble together a career um, and they do multimedia they do the photos they do the, the video reports and they just work so hard but you know they are they are so stretched thin that they don't have the time to do the depth that Anthony did, and and you can tell like I mean it's like they're very talented, very talented, but it's just not the same nuance, and I just don't know who's gonna who's gonna fill the void that he left. Like I mean, will we will we have someone like him? Will we have a couple people like him? I don't see that you know the newspapers are gonna allow for more Anthony Shadid's, and I don't certainly think the freelance well, model will. That's a, good, that's a good point. Let me just start out, because I want to hear what these people have to say. Who is going to take Anthony Shadid's place, or some of those people? But they're not going to start out as Anthony Shadid. Like, I didn't start out as Eric Severide. You know, I had a lot of lowly jobs before, before uh, I came to, and I've been at CBS 43 years now. 
uh, and those people just have to keep doing what they're doing, and these things will open up. But I'd like to hear you guys I mean, talk about first, that. First, I think, you know, Anthony, when he wrote for the Associated Press, was not Anthony Shadid. Um, I think Anthony became Anthony Shadid, to my mind, uh, when he went to Iraq, and even more when he and Rajiv were doing this incredible tag team, where Rajiv covered the green zone and Anthony covered the red zone, right? I mean, Anthony was given the freedom by his employer to linger for several days because he didn't have to run back to the green zone and see if, you know, Jerry Bremer was saying something new. Um, and I think that's what, that's really, that was his transformative moment. And it was created by editors who made choices that we will spend money doing this. That's what editors decided 10 years ago. Will editors make those kinds of calls now? Will they make them 10 years from now? Or will they go more toward this producer-editor, what they call predator, you know, writer? No, that's what they call them, right? Because people who shoot their own video and edit their own video and upload it are called predators, apparently. And then there's, you know, the people who do that, and they write for wires, and they do freelance, and do all that stuff. Is that the model? Because that's not the model that creates people who can do th the kinds of really transformative work. That creates people who can fill content, who can fill the column The most important thing is to just keep showing up. I applied for a job at CBS for five years. I could not get an appointment. Could not even get an appointment to get in the door. So one day I just walked in the CBS Washington Bureau without an appointment. I was afraid to ask for one because I'd never been able to get one and was hired. And not only was I hired, they thought I was somebody else. <laughs> I found out later I walked in on another person's appointment. And they thought I was that person. His name was Bob Hager. He later went to work at NBC. But I mean, that's an absolutely true story. The, secur the security's tighter now. Yeah. <laughs> I found out when I met Bob last week. I would also say that Bob Hager did not find that story nearly as amusing. <laughs> <laughs> What about if you want to be a reporter? What about it, Bob? Um, I do think you know it takes an awful lot of struggle and work, <laughs> and especially uh, freelancers. Obviously, it's it's a very very difficult thing to do. I do think freelancers, oddly enough, in the past few years have had some unusual opportunities. Um, I mean, Iraq was was a great opportunity for a lot of freelancers, and I think the Arab Spring has been too. I mean, my colleague Laura Kasanov, who had done almost yeah. no newspaper reporting, Yemen. has done a lot of Laura Logan at CBS. Yeah, was yeah. a freelancer um, who just showed up in Iraq. Um, and I think obviously to move from those opportunities to the chance to do in-depth stuff is, 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 is a different matter that takes years. Um, I, as far as whether you know, there will be the opportunity to do that kind of stuff further down the line, I'd like to think so. I mean, I think my newspaper definitely values that kind of work. I mean, it's, it's not yeah, as easy to re replace someone like Anthony, but I think, you know, um, I guess the question going forward is, uh, will that continue? I mean, it, it's such an uncertain market right now in journalism. I would say, I think one hopeful sign is there's, a, there's something of a renaissance of interest in long-form journalism. Mm -hmm. um, and people are seeking new venues, some, 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 in some cases online, mm -hmm. in some cases you know, less well-known magazines. You know, not everybody can write for The New Yorker. But I think there are a lot of younger people I've been hearing about who want to write that, at that kind of depth and length. And, um, and they'll find their avenues. I don't mean to be the skunk at the party here, but um, no, I think it's it's gotten much, much harder. I think the, you know, the, the path forward is going to be even more, more difficult and more competitive. You know, think back to 20 years ago, I had a lot of friends who, you know, fresh out of college, decamped to various places where they, you know, they could, you know, had pretty good odds if they 
if they played their cards right, of cobbling together a couple of strings uh, and, uh, and, and, and at least eking out a decent living. Because back then, the Boston Globe, the New York Star-Ledger, the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, the Rocky Mountain News, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Miami Herald, Philadelphia Inquirer, all uh, had uh, budgets to, to buy freelance work from uh, uh, young American and British and other reporters overseas and probably left out you know, a dozen or two American newspapers. None of those papers now do any of that. Uh, they're using AP and Reuters and, and, and the New York Times and Washington Post wire services, if that. Um, so the chances of, of trying to sort of cobble that stuff together and using those clips to then leverage it into a, a, a stateside job that, that eventually will take you overseas, uh, that path has become much, much tougher. And, and so you, you can get lucky if you're, if you're really talented and you happen to be in the right place, like some of the stringers in Yemen, uh, for instance, you, know, you, can, you can get your lucky break, but, but the odds uh, have gotten much, much higher on all of that. And I, you know, I, I think that's just the, the reality that we live in. And I think that a number of the, um, you know, the, the, the new competitors in this space, some of the web-only publications, you know, they don't pay as much. Uh, they don't, um, and, and they don't have the same ambition. Um, and so that, that becomes a, a more complicated path forward, too. I do think that you know, there are interesting long-form models and models that may be sort of atypical, where if you want to go overseas and try to get a, you know, make a break for this, that you're not trying to, to, to think that three or four strings are going to pay your bills, but maybe you're teaching English, you're doing something else to put food on the table, and you're working on a couple of long-form pieces that you're trying to sell, not to newspapers, but magazines or, or online publications, and trying new models of, of making it work uh, to, to live and work overseas. Well, I think that you know, that's an important point, that, that Anthony had a different idea about how he's going to do his job right, than the way everybody had done it before. And I think part of his success is he was doing what nobody else was doing. I, I don't know how many of you got sort of halfway through a story and said, this must be an Anthony Shadid story. Because he sort of, in his mind, he reinvented the task and then said, well, you know, actually, I'm the best guy to do this task. So I think part of his success was not merely doing what others had done and sort of get constrained. Part of his success was inventing a space that only he could fill. But that's what always happens in any, any yeah. profession. I mean, teeny boppers never brought country music records until Taylor Swift came along. And she was the first one that figured out the, what to say to 14-year-old girls. And now she's the top-selling person uh, in the country music industry. But it's, it's the person who figures out what people need that they're not getting. That's the person that succeeds. Yes, sir? This is a graduate student, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, I'm KP Nair from The Telegraph. I've, I've just come back from Syria after a stint of reporting uh, for uh -huh. my newspaper. In fact, I arrived in Syria a couple of days after Anthony Shadid died, on the, on the very day that uh, Marie Colvin and uh, her really? colleague uh -huh. uh, were killed. Uh, so these tragic deaths were never far away from my mind throughout my stay in Syria. And for that reason, I all along wrestled with a moral dilemma while I was, I was in Syria, which is what I want to ask the panel about. Mm -hmm. Now, in the light of uh, increasingly violent locations that we have to cover as foreign correspondents, 
is it is it advisable <coughs> anymore to to sort of smuggle yourself into these uh, troubled spots go in there without uh, without uh, permission or uh, have not have the infrastructure like Anthony Shadi did not have when when he went in if I have your indulgence for one more minute. I put the same question to Syria's uh, information minister, Adnan Mahmoud. And uh, he told me that uh, if you come in without permission, without uh, going through the due process, we have no responsibility to protect anybody. And I thought, I mean, in a sense, of course, Syria is Syria. But still, there is an element, uh, there's some point in what he says, I thought, because every country has a system. You know what I mean? Yeah. Those of you who are not foreign correspondents here probably are not aware that getting you cannot just come into the United States and do reporting. There is a due process here mm -hmm. if you Well, want. let's just but talk about that. Is it worth it to go in? Uh, CBS had a correspondent, Clarissa Ward, who was in there twice uh, undercover. She got in and get some absolutely sensational work. Shadid was there. Nobody invited him in. Was it worth it? Not just for the well, New York Times, but is it worth it? I think it's a question that you have to continue asking j entirely based on what's happening at that particular moment. I mean, um, and you have to, you know, I mean, it's ultimately reporters are always going to want to go. If you don't go, someone else is going to want to go Absolutely. and they're going to pitch it to your newspaper. I mean, there's this tremendous hunger for that and your editors are going to do their best to make sure you stay safe, but ultimately they want someone in there too. I mean, I think so, it's absolutely worth it. What do you well, think? Richard? With all due respect to our questioner, uh, the United States government isn't indiscriminately shelling its civilians, and it's not targeting journalists. You know, if not for Marie Colvin and others who have gone in under great personal peril uh, to, to try to tell the story of what's occurred there, the world would not fully know. And we still don't fully know. We would know far less about what has occurred there. You know, in this age of you know, local coordination committees uploading videos to YouTube and tweeting about stuff, yeah, you get some sense of it. But uh, you know, the reporting that she did, uh, both in her newspaper, the Sunday Times, uh, and, 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 and what she would say, you know, said on CNN and, 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 and the BBC, gave us a far deeper understanding and and you know it pains me that that the the stories in anthony's notebooks won't you know, probably won't see the light of day uh in large part because his handwriting is so indecipherable um but you know he he remarked to netta his his widow over the phone um i think a day or so before he he died that he thought this was one of the best reporting trips of his career um you know there's, there's an important story out there, and that, that's what drove him there. That's what drove Marie uh, and, and others. And um, incredible atrocities being committed, and they believe the world uh, needs to know about what's occurred there. And uh, yes, countries have their, their systems, but um, you know, not all countries are at war with significant proportions of its population. Well, I mean, all governments have something they don't want the government to know about or don't want the rest of the world to know about, even, even our democracy, which we think is the, is the best in the world. And that's what journalism is about. And that's why uh, you can't have a democracy as we have without independently gathered information that citizens can take and use to judge the version of events that they're getting from the government. 
that's what journalism is all about, and that's why I think what Anthony Shadid and a lot of brave reporters and a lot of brave reporters that came before him have continued to do, and I think that's why it is such a, a noble profession. I want to thank all of you for being here, and thank you for being here on behalf of you.